So I'll begin this morning by calling out the elephant in the room, which is there in verse 12, and to one extent or another, uh, the verses uh, immediately surrounding it. Uh, I do not permit a woman, Paul says, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, in our cultural context, this is a, it's a hugely significant passage, and, and perhaps I should say right now, um, preparation time... Uh, notwithstanding, um, more is going to go unsaid today than said uh, because uh, so many books have been written and ink spilled and arguments had over uh, how to properly apply these words. Um, There is no way that I'll be able to um, uh, summarise or or address every question or concern uh, on these words. Um, But today, particularly I think in our cultural context, it is a significant passage. The interpretation of it is very much up for grabs in a way uh, that um, the people historically have have tended to accept. Uh, Also, um, I think you only really need to look around to see that uh, battle lines have been drawn between men and women uh, in a way that isn't really healthy. Um, it's, I, I feel uh, when I, you know, and, and maybe this is a social media thing, but uh, it very much feels I'm like on clips and comments and things like that, that, um, that it, it is men versus women. Uh, anytime a man seems to get ahead, there's a woman wanting to tear him down. Anytime a woman seems to get ahead, there's a, uh, there's a man saying something about typical women. Um, and it, it, it's, we do not live in a healthy state culturally, um, and the church ought to be different from that. Uh, it's not even crystal clear who holds the upper hand in the man versus women debate these days. Uh, on the one hand, men maintain greater physical strength. This much is true. Um, and depending on your own version of things, um, men uh, have some sort of social standing in line with a patriarchy or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, women have always possessed great strength. A different strength, uh, but a significant one. Uh, your lack of physical strength as a woman, may have necessitated this, but women too hold much power and great capacity to do both good and harm uh, with the powers at their disposal. Um, In many ways, women can be more subtle and clever uh, with the strength that they have. Now, even as I say this and sort of talk about men in general and women in general, I do want to acknowledge we're talking in generalities. Um, and, and talking in general terms isn't actually entirely unhelpful because there are things that are generally true even though we acknowledge that there are things that are specifically different. Um, you know, there are, for example, some women who are physically stronger than the vast majority of men uh, and there are some men who have more uh, domestic abilities or um, uh, emotional intelligence than the vast majority of women. Uh, but, uh, but generalities are still helpful things as long as we acknowledge what they are. We're speaking in general terms. And we should also remember that it's not not masculine or feminine traits that determine our sex or our gender. Uh, In fact, it it, it seems like some of the people who years ago were saying uh, it's okay to be a masculine woman, you know, a woman who goes out and uh, earns the bread for the family and, uh, and, and have a husband who's a stay-at-home dad and, you know, who, uh, who prefers more uh, gentle pastimes like art and reading or, or something like that. Um, some of the same people who are arguing for, you know, the, we shouldn't define masculinity or femininity based on a person's interests or strengths. Well, it's these same people now who seem to want to champion the idea that uh, external preferences 
like pink or long hair or an interest in fashion determines a man's femininity or, or you know, his, his true gender identity. Um, and so there's people playing fluidity with this thing called gender based on very external factors that, that really don't determine a person's sex or gender at all. I also want to acknowledge that the words in this passage are very personal uh, for many people. Uh, so while there are some men who, because they're not mentioned in the words that said do not teach, you know, they find this you know, only so much water off a duck's back, nothing to worry about, and there's going to be women too who are not personally inclined to teach, um, and so they find these words are some sort of delightful relief. That's okay, I didn't want to do that anyway. But there, there are others, right, and, and some of you will be those others. There are people who find these words very difficult for very personal reasons, um, mostly women, um, women who have great gifts, intellect, ability in communication and teaching, people who, who want to use those gifts in teaching. And yet the Bible seems to say that you shouldn't or mustn't. Um, there are also going to be women, uh, of course, who are conscious of uh, the, those particular disadvantages of woman, womanhood, perhaps because you've been taken advantage of. Um, uh, and so people who, uh, who want to push back against anything that might have even the appearance of sending women backwards into those dark ages. Uh, there are certainly women who have been hurt by men who have abused uh, other passages of Scripture, and this one, to their own advantage. So let me tell you, um, before we get even further into the passage, just how this plays out in the Presbyterian Church of Queensland, um, because I think, uh, I think it'll be helpful to just understand our standing point uh, if you're not a historical Presbyterian, which most of you are not, and that's fine. So as far as... Um, so only, here's basically the state of play. In the Presbyterian Church in Queensland, only men are ordained as ministers and elders, and typically only men will preach... Uh, in the context of a mixed-sex um, Sunday worship service. And so women are, are certainly free and encouraged to teach in other contexts, uh, children or women to women. Um, there are also other contexts where we might have a mixed group where a woman could speak uh, with, uh, with her own expertise and, um, and, uh, and, and we would be expected to listen. Um, so, so as far as I can make out uh, from looking at our rule book um, in the Presbyterian Church of Queensland, the application of this is that only men are ordained as ministers and elders. Um, in terms of, uh, I'll say this, in terms of preference or strategy or cultural engagement, there's other ways these things play out. Um, in other upfront roles at church, uh, I do like to have a mix of men and women. Uh, more often than not, uh, it's easier, in fact, to find women. Uh, who are willing uh, and skilled to do the things that uh, men uh, don't particularly feel like doing, things like music or singing or reading from the front, uh, leading in prayer, for example, and we'll have a look at prayer in the passage as well, which God says, uh, all the word says that uh, men should be praying. Um, so it, I'll also say in a town like Emerald, where there are actually just in number more men than women, uh, I particularly want to um, uh, have that balance reflected up the front. Uh, Western Christianity has somehow appealed more 
to women than to men. And so in most churches, uh, women outnumber the men. In fact, that might not just be a Western thing. That could even be a historical thing. You see, women uh, were very welcome and very influential in the very early church, uh, in the days of Jesus uh, and in the church uh, that, that immediately followed him. Uh, ideally, in this church here, I would like to practice and demonstrate both, one, uh, an attractive environment for men to participate and worship, uh, and, and so uh, on some level to encourage a, a, a masculine presence and feel to things, but also I'd like for us to be able to demonstrate and practice all due attention to the gifts and talents of the women in our church family. Now, I'm not clear which one of those we're doing least well, least well right now. Um, and, uh, and always very open uh, for feedback. Uh, if what we do here at church fails to reflect those things, uh, it's not necessarily because of conviction, it may be uh, for other reasons. Okay. Uh, one last thing I'll say in this already very long introduction, um, if we spend too much time focusing on that one prohibition in verse 12 to women, for all kinds of reasons we run the risk of missing the forest for the trees. Okay, so, for example, so much more is said in this passage of Scripture than simply, I do not permit a woman to teach. So much more, and we're going to look at that. Um, also, let me run that forest trees analogy a bit further, because we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, right? In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceived Eve by asking her to focus on the one tree that God had forbidden her to eat from. And she decided in that moment something along these lines. God wasn't so good after all, since he's depriving me of this one thing. And in that moment, she missed the very literal forest of fruit trees, heavy with fruit, good fruit to eat. As she focused on the one tree uh, that she was told she shouldn't be eating from. If this prohibition in scripture... Uh, that women oughtn't teach or hold authority in, in this context. If this prohibition upsets you, um, then I want to acknowledge that, uh, and, and in many cases the very valid reasons why this might upset you, uh, but I would like to also encourage you to please step back and look at the whole forest. Right, don't just look at the tree that you're not permitted to do, whatever it is that means, but look at the whole forest to see, please, God's overflowing goodness. This is not a God who holds out and holds back. He gave his only son. He's given many other good things along the way and he's prepared for you, every one of you, good works to do. There is much more that you can do than that you're told you mustn't do. This goes for both men and women. So let's have a look at the words then, the passage itself. Verse by verse, roughly. Starting from verse 8, which is on the screen behind me. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Oh, I'll let you know, this is where we get to dot points. <laughs> right? Um, and so I'm hoping that the words up here are going to um, speak more or less for themselves. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. It's pretty clear uh, when you look from verse 8 here um, in light of verse 12 further on that says that women oughtn't teach or hold authority, uh, that, uh, that Paul is trying to speak into a very particular cultural context. 
Uh, he is not in verse 8 saying that, men, uh, that women shouldn't pray. He's encouraging men who probably aren't praying to pray. And that seems to be, generally speaking, a more masculine fault than a feminine one. Women do, in my experience at least, seem to be the better, more faithful prayers than the men. And so, men, this ought to be, or is probably as hard on you as verse 12 is on some of the women in this church. You ought to pray. Lifting holy hands, he says, now that's not the main thing. This isn't about posture, mainly. Um, in fact, it, it could be reflecting a couple of things. Um, it, it was traditional uh, in Judaism and early Christianity to pray with hands uplifted. You, you can actually see passages in Scripture where people are praying like this. And so he's, he's just talking about the general posture of prayer, not saying that that's, this is how you must pray. Uh, also, um, as I've pointed out a couple of times, is uh, the, the context of 1 Timothy is that there's, there's bitter infighting in the church and that the men who are teachers in particular are, are cultivating quarrels and, and fights. And so it could be that he's saying, you know, here's men in the, in the assembly lifting their hands in, in anger, or you ought to be diverting your anger to prayer. And so men should pray, and women too, but men, this might be your battle more than the woman beside you. You should pray, and I should too. And particularly when anger or quarrelling is the, is the setting or the temptation, don't. Pray instead. Don't fight. Pray. Now look, I've focused the difficulties on verse 12 that says, you know, a woman oughtn't teach. Uh, verses 9 and 10 can feel as, uh, as oppressive uh, in some contexts as others as well. So look at what he says uh, in verses 9 and 10. Likewise also... Uh, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What are you telling me how I should dress now? What is men's fascination with uh, lording it over women's bodies and, 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 what they, uh, and their own preferences and fashion choices? No, I don't think this is what's going on here. I don't think Paul uh, is... Uh, is, is nitpicking. Um, again, I suspect he's speaking into uh, a very real cultural phenomenon in that day. Uh, it, it, is, it is very well documented that uh, in the early days of the Christian church, uh, there were very influential women, people who were already influential in their culture, very powerful, uh, very wealthy, uh, who in significant numbers were, um, uh, were converted to Christianity. Uh, and naturally, their influence that they held in society would have carried over in some ways in, into the local church setting as well. And, and in almost every case, this was very welcome. Uh, there were a lot of women who financially supported, well, Jesus' work in the first place, and, but then also uh, providing uh, uh, land and, and, and other gifts uh, for, for the ongoing work of the church uh, after Christ's uh, ascension into heaven. Uh, but... With, you know, one set of advantages comes a new set of temptations. And so with wealth comes a temptation to greed. With wealth can sometimes come a temptation to showboat and show off. And so 
uh, presumably, and, and this isn't so hard to imagine, right, that there would have been women who, uh, who although they were transformed in one sense and saved uh, by their faith in Christ Jesus, were also still drawn in temptation to, to show off their wealth and their importance and superiority by the way they dressed, to draw attention to themselves and in so doing draw the, their, the attention away from God. And so Paul is saying, don't draw attention to yourself. The attention ought to be on God. Um, and, by the way, he's not saying that men can't also have a problem with this. But are we really saying anything particularly controversial when we acknowledge that how one dresses and appears in general terms seems to be more of a fixation for women than it is for men? Okay, so there'll be men exceptions and female exceptions. That's fine. So this is an across-the-board thing, but in ancient Ephesus and in that context, it seems to be in that church that some women needed uh, to be reminded of this. But do remember, right, that what he's calling for here, you know, he's talking about this particular, particular issue of dress, but the alternative that he gives is an across-the-board alternative. This isn't a feminine alternative. Modesty. Self-control, good works. This is what he's commanding and encouraging of all people. And, 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 and women are very good at doing these things. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, again, this could be triggering. I would suggest that it's triggering today for us in a way that it was not triggering back then. Okay. In fact, this would have been read in almost the exact opposite way then to how we read it today. It, when, you, when you look at um, uh, the Greek text uh, that Paul originally wrote in, in all of these verses that we've read today, there is only one uh, sentence in which Paul uses a direct what's called imperative, a, a command form of the verb. And it's here, it's when he says, let a woman learn. More forcefully than anything else he says, grammatically speaking, he's saying, women, learn, grow in your faith. And this is countercultural. Because in those days, in the Jewish faith and in the other um, uh, religions surrounding, uh, women were not encouraged to learn. They were encouraged to go with the flow with their husbands. Now, that's not to say that's what all women necessarily did, but, uh, but, but this was sort of the, the religious um, framework was that women were uh, to sit in pure, quiet submissiveness and to not necessarily learn. But Paul is very eager to see women grow in their faith. Again, he's speaking into a cultural context. And it's worth saying, acknowledging at this point, I think, that as much as we will find verses in Scripture that uh, seem to uh, shrink possibilities for women, where those possibilities are not shrunk in the same way for men, the legacy of the Word of God and of Christianity has done way more good for women and your rights and standing in society than any other secular or any other religious framework. And to the extent that 
modern secular frameworks of feminism, etc., uh, are making positive strides for the sake of women, more often than not, they're actually riding off the coattails of the convictions that Christianity has embedded into our society. For example, God said, let us make man in our own image, man and woman, he created them. It is the scriptural uh, framework from page one that men and women are equal in dignity in the sight of God, equal uh, in, uh, in, uh, in their likeness to God himself, uh, that uh, has actually formed the framework for, um, uh, for women's rights and, and liberation, etc., That's not to say that there's no differences between men and women. You only have to look around and that's not, not, it's not just societal constructs that, that force us to appear different. Um, there are differences. And so I'll say, um, uh, just to throw a couple of big words your way, um, there's a couple of um, uh, different frameworks that operate in Christianity um, and, and the words are these, egalitarianism and complementarianism. And these words are applied to uh, how we view men and women in the church and their roles in the church. Egalitarianism says that men and women are equal in every way and have uh, equal rights and responsibilities and, um, and ought to have equal opportunities in every single sphere. That's egalitarianism, entirely equal uh, in every way, you know, down and across. Complementarianism says men and women are equal in uh, dignity, and in their responsibility to God and their family, but they complement one another uh, in their strengths and diversity. Uh, and the Presbyterian Church tends towards complementarianism as opposed to egalitarianism. Both want to say, we, we have more in common than not, whichever side of the fence you fall on. Both want to say, first and foremost, men and women are equal in the sight of God. But one wants to uh, say that uh, we should therefore all do the same things at the same times, at all times, and the other seeks to say, well, there, there are true differences, and those differences themselves are good and given to us by God for our blessing. Um, and that's where I sit. Um, and that's where, uh, that's the air you'll breathe in the Presbyterian Church, I, I hope. Now, look, the Presbyterian Church, you know, as I said, um, the Christian Church has more runs on the board than not in terms of fighting for the rights of women. Um, but the Christian church has its faults as well. And I absolutely want to acknowledge that. And the Presbyterian church has its faults. And I have my faults and my prejudices and, and, and these things will, will appear at times. I've also got a house full of girls that keep me in line. Um, I love them dearly. When I say I keep, they keep me in line, they keep me uh, I, I grounded and I love them dearly. Um, hello. Uh, so let a, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness is more than anything a command for the church to have an environment in which women can grow and exercise their faith. And in terms of quietness and submissiveness, these two are things that are, that are actually commanded in terms of the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, etc., for men and women. We should all be seeking to learn under God's Word with, with a sense of quietness. Uh, not looking for the exceptions, not looking for the bun fights, uh, but seeking rather to obey and submit uh, in every way that's possible. And then these tricky ones, uh, verse 12. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, I'll say this, I've mentioned a few times uh, that, um, that this passage is very grounded in the context in which, in the cultural context in which Paul is speaking. And so here's a possibility. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, is he saying this uniquely to the church in Ephesus that Timothy is in charge of? Um, because that, you know, that, that would fall in terms of the flow of, okay, in this context, men need this command. In this context, women need this command and, and, and et cetera. And so in this context, perhaps there is a handful of you know, troublesome women in particular, a little syndicate that are causing strife. And he's saying, well, because of, because of this particular you know, tumour right now, we, need to, we just need to cut it out for a time and, and these things can change down the track. Maybe. But I, there's other reasons why I don't think this is a uniquely culturally located command. And the reasons are exist in the text themselves. And, and they're here. Uh, in verse 13 and 14. Paul departs, in some sense, from the general flow of teaching in this passage to say, uh, to no longer say... Um, you know, this is what's going on in Ephesus and this is how, Timothy, you ought to respond in Ephesus. But at this time, he actually grounds what he's saying uh, in Scripture and in theology and in history. So uh, in two things, in verse 13, in the, in the order of creation and in the events of the fall. So this is Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Genesis chapter 3. He says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Actually, I'll skip that one for just a moment. It says in verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I don't think Paul is setting us up to say, well, you know, women are more easily uh, led astray uh, in general terms than men. I don't think uh, that's the course. He, he's looking at Genesis chapter 3 and saying, in this event, it was a woman. And, uh, and so it could be saying, although I don't think it's his, but it could be saying that, you know, this newfound order, uh, this order that exists in the church between men and women where men hold authority and women are to submit, is a newfound thing that's been introduced because of the curse, because of the fall, because, uh, because of sin. And so now in perpetuity we are now uh, commanded to continue in this pattern of fallenness uh, as a consequence of sin, men are to rule over women and that's just the way it is and you've got to deal with it. I'm not comfortable at all with that line of reasoning because Jesus has overcome the curse. Sin still exists, but in virtually every way, you know, and, and, and many of the effects of the fall still exist. Uh, weeds and thorns still grow and frustrate our work. Uh, childbirth, I hear, is still quite painful. Um, and so, um, and, and so, but, but I, I, I don't think back in chapter 3, uh, when God says to the woman, uh, your desire will be for the husband and he will rule over you. I don't see, I don't see him saying, um, did I say Paul said that, by the way? That's God who said that in Genesis chapter 3. Um, I don't see him saying, you know, uh, this is the burden you now have to carry. I think he's just saying that uh, there's always been a, a difference in role in the home where the man is to is to have authority in the home um, but that dynamic is now going to be more difficult and more trying and more bitter between the two of you 
and that's a that's a real crying shame. It it doesn't need to be that way. Order and authority structures don't need to be bitter, but they are as a result of the fall. But here's the thing: back in verse thirteen. Paul isn't grounding his argument for women not to have teaching authority positions in the events of the fall, but in the order of creation that God ordained in the time when all things were still good. In fact, at the very moment when God said particularly things are now very good, Adam was formed first, then Eve. It appears that in doing that, God was teaching us something way back then on day six of creation that the man is is the leader of the home. And in one sense, the woman is under his authority, even as they are both made equally in the likeness of God to love one another. And we have seen, haven't we, uh, right in the centre of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God is to reflect something like the order of a household. And then when he says later on in chapter 3, which we're not going to go into as much detail, but we read, he's talking about men who ought to be elders, then one of the things you ought to look at to see whether they're going to be fit to lead in the church is to see whether they're fit to lead in the family and the home. And so, uh, as we've said, like one of the main driving metaphors for what a church ought to look like isn't that it's a company or an organisation, or a machine with cogs and moving parts, but it's a family with the order that God has lovingly and wisely placed in the family order, in the home, that then overflows into the way we structure things uh, in the church. And so that is why in the, in the Presbyterian expression in Queensland, uh, we've adopted this position of, well, uh, men are ordained for ministry and men are the ones who preach in uh, in mixed contexts uh, of, of Sunday worship. That is not to say that men shouldn't listen to women, for crying out loud. Uh, where, where do you think we get our wisdom from? It's from the people we listen to. We don't create it. Uh, and so uh, men must pay attention to the women in their lives. I am much smarter for being married, I promise you, um, than I was before. Uh, and that's not because of me, it's because of what God has given me. And so, um, and so it, it, it is certainly the case that men must listen. It is certainly the case that women must speak. Share your good ideas. Do your good works with great energy as you're uh, encouraged to do. And hold us men to account. And men hold one another to account. Uh, and let's try and do this uh, really well and really lovingly and really graciously with each other. In closing, let's end with another tricky one. Verse 15. Of the woman, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Wow. That's another painful personal one, isn't it? Uh, probably for many. What does it mean to say that, that, that women um, will, be sh- will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, I would say the emphasis is on faith and love and holiness and self-control. I mean, that's the contingent thing, right? Childbearing alone is, is, is not the thing. 
Uh, and we, we certainly know from the clear emphasis of Scripture that salvation is through faith alone. It is, our salvation is brought by Christ's work, not by ours. What he has done on our behalf, not what we can offer or produce for him. And the Bible is littered with examples of women uh, who uh, were not married or who were barren. Um, and look, in many cases, as a sign of God's blessing, uh, those, uh, those barren women uh, then had children. But, the, but I'll say this, okay, there's, there's two, I think, possible ways of understanding this passage. That um, One is really attractive, um, and it could be right, but I don't think it is. The other is, I think, actually really quite compelling and quite sensible. So I'll give you the attractive one, because it's, it's a really interesting thing to unpack. Here's a really attractive one. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, where God pronounces the curse on the man and woman and he says to the woman uh, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing and he says to the woman no to the serpent he says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel we did Genesis chapter 3 Genesis last term uh, and we were looking at how at how from that moment on in Genesis chapter 3, we are looking for the offspring, the one offspring of the one woman who will crush the serpent, who will uh, break Satan's power. And so this is, this is uh, possibly what we're seeing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, is a link from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and he's not talking about women in general raising children, but he's talking about the offspring of the woman, Jesus himself, who broke the power of sin. And wouldn't that be a beautiful, neat, um, Christ-centred way of understanding this passage? That's a really appealing one. I think it's got some merit, but I don't think, personally, that that's the main thrust of what Paul is saying. Um, Here's what I think Paul is really trying to get at. Um, I'll use an example. Uh, My wife, Natalie, she's a a speech pathologist. They call themselves speechies. Um, Now... What I've discovered in, in dating, Natalie, uh, that speech therapy is not only about speech. They, they use the word speech. It's a summary term for, for what they are and what they do. Uh, but there's all these other words that uh, sound to me like the same thing but are very different, distinct things. Speech, voice, language, but very different disciplines within what they do in speech. How am I going, Lauren? Yeah? Um, what am I missing? Literacy. Sorry, fluency. What else? But there's even like social skill training and, and, and learning difficulties and disability training and, and all sorts of things. It is this really broad thing. And in saying this one word, speech, there's, like the, there's a word that's thrown at this really broad discipline that naturally leaves things out, but it's, it's one word given in summary for the whole. Here's what I think Paul is doing when he says she will be saved through childbearing. I think he's giving a one-word summary for the whole of a woman's work. He's saying, under normal circumstances, and look, tell me if I'm wrong, but, I, but I'm not wrong, right? Under normal circumstances, most women will marry and most women will bear children. And a good chunk of their lives and energy will be engrossed in carrying and then raising those children. That does not 
and 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 so um, and so I think what Paul is doing is he's he's throwing a word at the at the whole of what womanhood is, and it's a word that's at the center, but it's not the whole, and it leaves a lot more out than what it includes. But there will be but. A woman is saved not only through childbearing, but as she goes about her good works in general. And so uh, this is not linked to your fertility or the size of your family uh, or, uh, or whether or not you're married. You are saved through faith and you must continue in love and holiness with self-control. Men, you too. You are saved by faith and you must continue with love and holiness and self-control. But there is this unique, beautiful thing that more often than not, uh, most women will accomplish in their life and they're uniquely gifted and skilled to do. And so Paul has used one word to summarise the whole and in so doing he's left a lot out. Uh, But he's actually uh, speaking to uh, one of these most beautiful and powering gifts given to women in general, although not to every woman in particular, which is difficult. I'll just say again in summary, let, let's not, uh, when we come to passages like this, let's please not lose the forest for the trees. Uh, let's please look at the whole passage in context. Let's remember that God is not a God who holds out. Uh, when he says to not do a thing... He's saying that for your good. And he has given you so many other very good things to do. Now, I'll say as well, again, I've, I've said less than I think about all of this. And I've said far less than there is to say. And I'd love to have more conversations with you um, if that's going to be helpful uh, for you. And I would certainly encourage you to talk these things over with each other. But let's pray that God will, um, will speak to us and, uh, and grow us through all of this. Let's pray. God, you are very good. You have given us your son. You are not a God who uh, holds back or who mainly takes away. You are, uh, you, you are defined for us way more in terms of a God who gives. You are a father uh, who uh, holds nothing back. Father, to the extent that there are things that uh, we would desire to do Uh, that you don't permit us to do. We pray that you'll help us to continue to exercise faith and obedience to you. We pray that for every one of us, man and woman, that we would learn and grow in our faith, that we will exercise the fruit of the Spirit, faith, uh, self-control, gentleness, submission, men and women. Father, we pray that um, in the cultural context that we exist in right now, where it seems to be men versus women, Help us to break out of that nonsense. Help us as men to love and support one another and help us as men to love and support the women in our lives and in our church. And help women as well to love and support and build up one another and to love and support uh, and build up the men in their lives and in their church. Uh, Help us to create here in this church, in your guidance uh, and by your spirit, something really beautiful Uh, that uh, stands out as a light in this otherwise dark world. Amen.